as we continue our series on the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of our Lord Jesus. I want you to notice with me now out of Matthew chapter 4 what we call the temptations of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Over the past few years, I suppose in part because of the position that I'm in and also the age that I've gotten to, a couple of folks who also have reached older years have come to me in private and have shared with me part of their lives. And the conversations have begun on their part in this way. Tim, I want to tell you something that I've never told anyone. Or Tim, I'm going to tell you something that nobody else knows about. That's a pretty heavy-duty experience. In a sense, that's the type of text that I've been assigned today by Doug about the temptations of the Lord Jesus. You see, apparently, the apostles, knowing about this and writing it down in the Gospels, came directly from the lips of Jesus himself. Because as we read the account, particularly in Matthew and in Luke, we find there are no human eyewitnesses. There's no family, there are no friends, there are no followers at this experience. Only wild beasts and angels, according to the Gospel of Mark. And so uniquely, we find something directly from Jesus himself here about what happened to him and what we know as the temptations of Jesus. In our text today, first of all, I notice what I would call the twist. You see, we've been studying for the last several weeks how the Lord Jesus has been led and directed and filled by the Holy Spirit. And typically, when you and I think of the Holy Spirit empowering us, or the Holy Spirit leading us, or the Holy Spirit doing something in our lives, we think of that as being something very positive. 
And yet here the Bible amazingly says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In fact, Luke 4.1, describing this, says Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and yet is led into the wilderness to be tempted. In fact, Mark uses the term driven. It's the basic idea of ejecting. There is a forceful directive of the Holy Spirit for Jesus to go into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. It reminded me of Acts 16, verses 6 and 7 where the Apostle Paul, that great preacher of the gospel, has a burning burden to go into Asia of that day and time and preach the gospel. But the Bible says, amazingly, the Holy Spirit will not let him go there. Verse 7 says, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit Paul to go in to Asia to preach the gospel. That's rather surprising to us, isn't it? This twist in the way the Spirit would lead. Now, the Bible says he is led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, that's interesting for at least a couple of reasons. One is the wilderness, and they feel that's probably a geographical area somewhere off the path between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it's a desertous yet mountainous area that is absolutely desolate. And the Holy Spirit directs Jesus out there. Now, it's interesting. In one sense, I would almost call that home field advantage for the devil. Because, you see, if you study the Scriptures, you often find the wilderness connected with the wicked one. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, you find a term that you find nowhere else in the Bible. Four places in Leviticus 16, the scapegoat. Is mentioned. And that's when a goat was sacrificed for the sin of the people. The other goat had its head uh, covered by the hands of the high priest, as it were, putting the sins of the people on this scapegoat. And then that scapegoat was led out into the wilderness. Interestingly, that term scapegoat in the Hebrew is our English Azazel. And many Jewish rabbis have connected that with a demonic spirit. In fact, if you carry the English Standard Version, I'm told that there is a footnote that says Azazel, or that term scapegoat, is actually connected possibly with the name of a demon. And so it's almost like Jesus is being put on the home field advantage of the devil in this temptation time. Interesting, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43, Jesus said when an evil spirit leaves a man, he goes out into the wilderness or dry or arid places seeking rest. And then when I think of the wilderness as well, I think of the fact Doug has repeatedly shown to us how the Lord Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the new Adam, the great Adam. Because the first Adam got us into sinful trouble, the second Adam can get us out. And remember, the first Adam was in a plush garden and yet yielded to temptation. This greater Adam is in a desolate wilderness and yet overcomes temptation. The Bible says he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, when you and I generally hear the word tempted, we tend to think enticement to sin, enticement to do something wrong. 
And it certainly can mean that, and at times does. But often in the Bible, tempted, if you read particularly like the King James Version, really has the idea to do with being tested. And both are true within the greater word of being tempted or tested. Sometimes it can be an enticement to evil. Sometimes it can be the idea of testing or proving one's loyalty, strength, obedience, or faith. Now, from the devil's perspective, he certainly wanted the Lord Jesus to do something wrong. But from the Holy Spirit's perspective, I believe he is doing two things with the Lord Jesus. Number one, he is, if you will, proving him. In other words, showing him that, showing in him that by his passing these tests, overcoming these temptations, he is proving his worthiness as the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. Have you ever been to a weight room? No? Okay, well. But if you ever have, they've got that bar there, and then they put the weights on each end of it. Is the idea to put on so much you can't lift? No, the idea is putting on more to show how much you can lift. And it's as though with the Lord Jesus, it's not showing that he could fail, but rather that he will not fail that he is worthy as the Son of God and our Savior. And then secondly, in a sense, I think the Holy Spirit was preparing him as our great high priest, Hebrews says, because now when you and I, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 60, go to him in prayer, the Bible says we have a great high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. In other words, when you and I go to him in prayer with the honest admission and confession, Lord Jesus, I am struggling with some type of sin or evil, he understands. He is sympathetic to that. He has been prepared, if you will, to be sympathetic to the struggler, to the one battling temptation. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, if you will, proved as the Son of God and Savior and prepared for our prayers and our struggles. And then I see secondly in our text, the tempter. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ encounters the tempter. And the tempter, we have a more uh, full description of him in Revelation 20 and verse 2, where the Bible says that dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan. A Bible study will reveal that the devil or Satan or the tempter here is an awesome angel who turned to become the adversary and accuser of God and man. And the Bible says here regarding the tempter that he comes in this onslaught against Jesus. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you say, Oh, Tim, I don't believe in the devil. Well, you're probably like those two little boys that were talking. And the one little boy said to the other, Do you believe in the devil? He said, No. He said, Man, it's like Santa Claus. It's my dad. On a more serious note, you may be sitting here saying, oh, I don't believe in this devil stuff. I don't believe in Satan. There's a movie coming out, and I am not recommending the movie, 
but it's called the rite. And in it, it's a, a Catholic priest dealing with exorcism. But there's a great line that Anthony Hopkins, the well-known actor, says, as a, I guess as a, as a priest to another priest. He says, choosing to not believe in the devil does not protect you from him. I thought, you know, that's pretty spot on. Choosing not to believe in the devil does not protect you from him. And you see, I want to assure you this morning that the apostles who wrote the New Testament had every confidence and every belief that just as our Lord Jesus Christ battled the devil, so will we, his people, battle the devil as well. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27, the apostle Paul writes, Do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 6 and verse 11, Paul again writes, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Peter believed it. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert for your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. James, the brother of our Lord, believed it. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Part of the Christian journey is meeting temptation, facing test, and being challenged by evil, just as our Savior was. The twist, the tempter. The temptations themselves. In a word, I would describe them as devious for a few reasons. Number one, it seems like the devil came to tempt Jesus when he was, if you will, vulnerable. You see, he's just been on a high spiritually. He was just baptized, fulfilling righteousness. He was just baptized by his cousin, John Baptist. He was at his baptism, spoken to aloud by the Heavenly Father, who said, this is my beloved Son. He just had at his baptism the Holy Ghost come down upon him in the form of a dove. You talk about a high. And you know what's interesting? Sometimes when you are emotionally charged and stirred up, and excited, that's when you perhaps are the most vulnerable to say or do or give in to something that you would regret. In another sense, Jesus is at a low. The Bible says he's just fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, another sermon for fasting. But let me just say this, it is a worthy spiritual discipline for most people with good health or decent health to consider. Secondly, I find it interesting, 40 days, 40 nights, some believe that to be literal, some believe it to be symbolic of a long time. Whatever it is, the three people who did it mount, meet on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They're the three people in the Bible who it says they fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So apparently there's something very spiritually valuable about fasting. 
But after fasting, it's almost humorous for us to read it. It says, after he fasted 40 days and nights, he was hungry. Duh. <laughs> like, really? Okay. But when you understand, I think what's being said there, the goal has been reached. Have you ever worked hard at something, then after it's reached, you kind of relax? So, well, I made it. <laughs> well, it's like the Lord Jesus had this goal in fasting, and then once it's done, he said, okay, now I can think about food. And in that vulnerable way, if you will, being low, if you will, weak, weary, hungry, the devil comes to him. And you know, sometimes when you are very low, it's when you are most vulnerable to give way to something or do something or say something or react in some way that you regret. And the Bible would define a sin. So it's like the devil took advantage or sought to of Jesus seemingly being vulnerable I would say to you and I regarding temptation, be careful. Because sometimes in our moment of greatest strength, He can bring in a temptation of weakness. Sometimes in our great weakness, He can bring a very strong temptation against us. Number two, I see here, if you will, Him using doubt. You know, the questioning. Remember, at the baptism, the Heavenly Father has just said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And just a little while later, the devil is saying to him twice in these temptations, If you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God. Trying to cast doubt. And sometimes the temptation can come to you and I to doubt our faith or to doubt the Lord or to doubt the truth. Great saying I read years ago from R.T. Ketchum, who was one of the founders of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches that I grew up in. He said, never doubt in the dark what you know to be the truth in the light. Let me say that again. Never doubt in the dark what you know to be the truth in the light. Thirdly, I see the devil using the Bible. Isn't that amazing? He, the, he takes the Psalms and he says, now listen, it's written. But he seems to be taking it out of context, challenging Jesus to try to uh, throw himself off the temple and dare God to spare him. After all, he is the Messiah and he's destined for the cross. So nothing can hinder him before that, death-wise, May I say this about preaching and teaching God's Word? It must be in context. That's why the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, we are to handle correctly the Word of God. I guess that means it can be mishandled, and the devil would be one to do it. So I would just caution you, someone's waving a Bible in your face, still make sure that it's accurately contextually what is being taught and said. Even the devil can preach the Bible. Fourthly, I see these temptations are repeated. It's not just a one time, you know. He gave him that one temptation. Well, that's it. Well, I've passed the test. I'll be a perfect Christian from now on, if you will. No, no. He came to him three times there. Boom, boom, boom. And then Luke says in this account, that he, until an opportune time, left him. In other words, the devil said, I'm done with you right now, but I will be back. Brothers and sisters, there never comes a point spiritually where you can say, I've arrived, and I'll never struggle with sin again. 
until we get to glory. In the meantime, we must stay humble, alert, challenging one another in the Word and asking for the mercy and grace of God against the onslaught of the wicked one. Finally, you know what I find interesting about these temptations? They're what I would call subtle. In other words, you know, the devil didn't come and say, okay, Jesus, I want you to murder somebody. Okay, Jesus, boy, let's go out here and hit it up with some gal. Okay, Jesus, come on, let's rob a bank. No, the first temptation was frankly quite simple. I mean, there are in that area where it's so desolate in the wilderness, these little rocks that look like little loaves of bread. He said, make them bread. You're hungry? Turn them into bread. I mean, how wicked is that? A simple temptation. And I'm not sure completely why Jesus rejected that. I know he had his reasons. But the point is simply this, that it was something simple. Do you remember the first sin of humankind? Eating some fruit. You know, brothers and sisters, generally speaking, on Sundays when we gather together, we're not preaching to a crowd of murderers and rapists and thieves. But the reality is, for many of us sitting right here this morning, it is those seemingly simple little sins that hinder our walk with God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Number two, there is the, uh, what I would call the sensation of sin. He takes him up on a high temple. And by the way, if you read Matthew and Luke, these last two are switched in their order. It seems to be not so much that Matthew and Luke were concerned as much about the sequence as from their own angles, the emphasis of the temptations. That's for another study. But simply put, it's this. When he comes to leaping off the temple, it's like a sensation. Go ahead, leap off. In fact, there was a legend among some of the Jewish people that when the Messiah came, he would leap off the temple and not be hurt. And so it's like, man, show you're the Messiah. Leap off. It's suggested there could have been a distance of over 80 feet or much farther that Jesus would have leaped. And he said, you won't hurt yourself. The angels will take care of you. And Lord Jesus refuses that. You know, sometimes it is the thrill of the moment. Sometimes it is the appeal of a thrill where we just want to cast caution to the wind and just say in this moment, I don't care. And it doesn't matter what the barriers are or what God's rules are or what the consequences are. That sin looks great. It feels good. It smells good. It's just what I want. And oh, it is the pleasure of sin, but just for a season. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews that Moses rejected the pleasures of sin for a season, that he might be with the people of God. Forever. Be careful of that thrilling moment that's not the right moment. And then finally, I see the shortcut. You see, Jesus has already been promised by the Father and in the prophecies of the Psalms and so on that he will rule the earth. But the devil said, man, you can have it right now. You just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Think how you can straighten out all the politics. Think how you can straighten out all the religions. Think how you can straighten out all the crime. Think how nobody will be hungry. I mean, you can take over and it'll all be good. You can have it right now. Just bow down and worship me. Sometimes the greatest overcoming of temptation is learning to wait. 
Sometimes the body cries, sex now! When God's will is to wait. Sometimes our flesh cries out, spit now! Only to find then that we're not able to give and bear our financial responsibilities appropriately because we gave them to the impulse of instant gratification. Sometimes God's will is waiting. So you see, these are some very, very potent temptations that the tempter brought to our Savior. And here's the testimony. He overcame them all. First of all, we see the purity of Christ. When it was all said and done, the devil left him defeated. Jesus had overcome. He had not done anything wrong. We're reminded of John chapter 8 and verse 46 where the Lord Jesus said to the crowd of that day who had record to his life, saw his daily living, he said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Of course they couldn't. Hebrews chapter 4. Tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Peter declares he committed no sin. 1 Peter chapter 1 or 2 and verse 22. And then finally, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He had no sin, so he could die as the sin substitute in your place and your place and my place, bearing the judgment for our sin and bearing our sin and God pouring his wrath of sin upon him at the cross, that you and I might be spared and saved Then when payment was made, the Father resurrected him. The receipt, as you will. He who knew no sin became sin for us and bore our punishment. That's the only way any one of us here can be saved. Because Christ, who had no sin, took the judgment of sin for us. I know there's a great debate. Could Jesus have sinned? There are many Christian leaders that say, well, he could have, but he didn't. Other Christian leaders say there's no way he could have. He was God. I'll let you settle that debate. I have my opinion. But I will tell you this. He did not sin. He has no sin. And he never will. Hallelujah. The other testimony is this. The power of the word. Three times he overcame three temptations by stating out of Deuteronomy 8.3, 6.16, 6.13 to the devil every time answering temptation with the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. My dad in his Bibles for years is when he gets a new Bible always writes in the front flyleaf, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Let me encourage you. If you haven't been getting into the Word in this new year, Marjorie Krogh, our children's minister, has some of these pamphlets right up at the top building. Be glad to help you get one or something like it. It just helps you go through a small portion of God's Word every day 
And in a year's time, you've read it. If you started this week, you'd still have plenty of time to get in and catch up. Now, why am I even showing you this? Because I'm recommending this, recommending this particular book? No. I'm just talking. We can talk all day long about the Bible to help keep you from sin. But you see, unless you find a way to honestly get into it, it's not going to really help you. This is simply a way to get into the Word as a defense against the wicked one, against sin, against temptation. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Edward Sellers wrote almost a hundred years ago, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee that I might not sin that I might not sin, thy word have I hid in my